0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Book of Mark, chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, that is okay. We do have paperback Bibles. They are underneath a chair in front of you. Um, if you're new here today and you don't even have a Bible, we'd like to offer you one of those Bibles as our gift to you, so feel free to take that home. In the paperback Bible, uh, the passage will be found on page 494. We're going to be looking at Mark 10, 17 to 31. i got to take just a couple minutes for another brief um, announcement here. This is just kind of uh, reporting something to you. Some of you uh, know that we had a congregational meeting back in January. <clears throat> And we amended the bylaws of our church to eliminate term limits for our officers, elder and deacon. And uh, we are required to report an update to you on this situation. We've sent out an email here recently, but we're going to do it publicly as well to make sure this requirement is fulfilled. So what we've done, again, is eliminated the term limits for elders and deacons. Um, the, The issue is that we've got several men over the years past who have been elected and have served at least one term as an elder or deacon and have stepped away and have been inactive for quite a few years. And so we needed to get in touch with them and find out what their intentions were with regard to their status as elder and deacon. So this is what I'm going to give you a quick update on. Um, So here's what we have. Those wishing to return to active service include Zach Whitman as deacon, John Bow as elder, that's been reported, I think most of you know that, but also Bob Darby has come back on board as an elder. So that means we have five deacons and seven elders total here at New Life Now. Those desiring emeritus status include Mark Parkinson as deacon, Scott Jordan, Wendell Connor as elders, emeritus status. And then those desiring that their official relationship with the session be dissolved, uh, that's just book of church order language for they don't want to serve as elders or deacons any longer, include David Lowry and Frank Baldwin as elders, and also Evan Austin, Joel Bryan, Todd Rourke, Larry Harding, Dan Perkins as deacon. So we have hereby fulfilled our obligation to inform the congregation about the uh, intent of these inactive officers. If you have any questions about that, feel free to talk to uh, Pastor Brian, me, or anybody else uh, on the session. So thanks for your attention to that. All right, let's turn to the Word of God here. Again, it would be super helpful for you if you have Bible open in front of you. We like to give special attention to the details of Scripture, so it will be helpful if you can look down at a passage as we go through this message. Uh, Mark 10, 17-31, one of the kind of most notorious days in the calendar year, thankfully, has passed just a couple weeks ago. Uh, That day is Tax Day, April fifteen. Perhaps some of you got a refund on Tax Day this year. Uh, Good for you. Not all of us got a refund. And for uh, many, when Tax Day comes, it's kind of a reminder of how little of our money we get to keep and how much of our money the government gets to take. And at the very least, every Tax Day, um, we're just kind of reminded of the central importance that money and wealth play in our hearts and minds. Uh, April 15th doesn't remind us of finances necessarily because for many of us, we're mindful of finances all year round, right? There is much to be said about money and how we deal with it. Uh, Lots of notable people have said things like this, Will Rogers, too many people spend money they haven't earned to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. Francis Bacon, money is a great servant, but a bad master. Oscar Wilde, when I was young, I used to think that money is the most important thing in life. Now that I'm old, I know that it is. (laughs) It's one one perspective, not one that we would share here, but uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, money often costs too much, (laughs) right? You got to have money to make money, as they sometimes say. <clears throat> and then Albert Einstein, kind of known as the, one of the smartest people who have ever lived, the hardest thing in the world to understand is the income tax. So if he struggled with the income tax, I guess it's okay if we do also. Uh, money plays a big part in our lives, right? And one thing that is worth noting is that there is a strong connection between our spiritual health and our attitude toward money. Uh, The cliche is this. You've probably heard this said before. If you want to know what a person really values, look at his or her checkbook. Uh, Not all of you use checkbooks anymore, I understand. So we could just say, if you want to know what a person really values, look at the way he or she spends money. That's where you find where a person's heart really is. And the Bible has a lot to say about money. I mean, from beginning to end, there are... Are frequent allusions to wealth and riches, and Jesus himself spoke often about money, and we have arrived at a passage here in the book of Mark that is one of those examples, a passage where Jesus is addressing wealth or riches, and that's what we're considering today, Jesus and wealth. <clears throat> now, you might recall that we kind of rushed ahead to chapter 11. We're just going through the book of Mark one passage at a time. We came to Palm Sunday a few weeks ago. Mark 11 is the Palm Sunday passage. So we jumped ahead to Mark 11 for Palm Sunday, but we've got unfinished business in chapter 10. And so we're going back uh, to chapter 10 where we left off. When we get to chapter 11, then we'll, we'll skip ahead. So again, our passage is chapter 10, 17 to 31. If you're able to stand, please do so and let me read the Word of God to you. Mark 10, 17. <clears throat> and as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, what does this passage have to tell us about our relationship to money, riches, wealth? Three things. First thing is this. First of all, wealth can be a distracting idol. Can be. It's an important choice of words there. I'm not saying it always is, but wealth can be a distracting idol. So the passage begins again here in verse 17. We've got this man who comes running to Jesus, comes to Him, and kneels before Him. And one thing we should notice about this man is that this is a guy who has it all. This is a guy who would be considered first in the world. He He is a Man, first of all, in a very patriarchal society, that would have been a big advantage. He's a man. He's rich. He's got a lot of possessions. He's wealthy. He is young. Actually, Mark doesn't tell us this. Matthew 19 does. When Matthew gives us a description of the same event, it says that he's young. Luke 18 tells us that he is a ruler. Also, Mark doesn't mention that. Luke does, and so. Very often this story is referred to as a story of the rich, young ruler. So rich, young, male ruler. This is a guy who has it all. He has everything that uh, people would desire in the world, but in this man's life there is something missing. And don't we find this so often? We, we gain so many things in this world. We have so many advantages. We might be very rich and very wealthy and have a lot of possessions, but we find that there's something missing. And for this man, what he is missing is an assurance of where he stands before God. He has no assurance that he's saved. He doesn't know if he has eternal life. He doesn't know where he's going after he dies. Even though he has all of these wonderful things to enjoy, he offers this question to Jesus at the end of verse 17. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to know how to be saved. And so, friends, you you might have everything that you would want in your life, but maybe for you there is something missing as well. And even though you enjoy so many worldly benefits, do you know how to inherit eternal life? That's the most important thing for you to know. And we have to give this man credit. He realizes this is the question. How do I inherit inherit eternal life? Well, if you're one who has done any evangelism and tried to share your faith with people, if you consider yourself evangelist, this is the question that we long to hear, right? I mean, talk about a softball question. I mean, how many times has somebody said that to you? You know, you're trying to share your faith. Typically, you get all these objections and questions and and arguments. Oh, wouldn't it be great if someone just said, "Hey, how do I become a Christian? How do I be saved?" How how do I have eternal life? That's exactly what this guy asked Jesus. And, of course, we all know the answer to that question, right? Receive Jesus as your personal Savior, invite Him into your heart, and you'll be saved. That's the right answer. That's the answer probably most of us would give to that question. But here's the interesting thing. That's not the answer that Jesus gives. I mean, what is Jesus doing here? Rather than giving a clear answer to this very softball kind of question, Jesus instead invites him into a theological discussion about the definition of the word good. Now, one thing I think we can take from this is that we have to be very careful when we think about evangelism to think that there's kind of like a one-size-fits-all evangelistic approach. The The fact is, every single individual is different. And when we share the faith with others, we have to be sensitive to where people have come from, what they think, what their issues are and speak to them as individual people and do the best we can to discern what they need to know and what we need to talk about. We, we can't just bring out a canned sales approach that we use in every single case. Sometimes, yeah, you can just say, believe in Jesus and be saved, but there are other times when that might not be the best answer, and apparently this is one of them, because Jesus is inviting him into this discussion. So here's what he says, verse 18. In response to the question, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I mean, what an odd way to respond to that question. What, what is Jesus trying to say here? What's he doing? One thing I think he's doing is, is this. I think he's trying to press home a point about who he is, because I think he, he understands this ruler doesn't really know who he's talking to. So what Jesus is saying is like, okay, you call me good, yeah, but, but look, Only God is really good. By implication, he's saying, if only God is good and you're calling me good, what that basically means is that I am God. That's one of the points he's trying to make. You're talking to God here, rich young ruler. He he doesn't know that, but kind of Jesus is getting in this, this subtle point. But I think also what Jesus is doing is, again, challenging this man's assumption about what the word good means. Now, that might strike you as kind of an odd thing as well, except that if I were to ask you to define good, I I bet you you would stumble a little bit. It's not as easy to define as you might think. But it's a word that we use very frequently. It's like the word nice. You know, it's just one of these common words we use. That was a nice day. He's a nice guy. I have, a, you know, I have a good dog. It was a good game. We just use these certain words over and over again. We've used them so often that we've lost sight of what they really mean. Biblically speaking, what is it to be good? And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make with this man. And what he's going to show this man here is that being good is more than just Adhering to some kind of outward, external action. Being good is more than just checking the boxes of what you're supposed to do. Being good is not just what happens outwardly, but even more importantly, it is about what's going on inwardly. It's about the heart. It's about motives. It's not about just what you do. It's about why you do what you do and Jesus is bringing this to this man's attention. And here's how he do it, rather how he does it, rather than just saying it that way, um, Jesus kind of cleverly um, has a way of making the point. And So verse 19, he says to this man, he says, "Okay, well, you know the commandments?" And he lists them, do not murder, adultery, steal, etc. He he lists them all. And um, you know, the implication is that that's kind of one way to be good. Those are the external actions. And in verse 30, the man says, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been there, done that. I've, I've, I've done all those things. Yeah, I've, outwardly speaking, I've, I've obeyed everything that God has, has commanded me to do. In fact, not just even recently. I've been doing that since I was a youth. I've been doing that since I was a small boy. For my entire life, I have been obeying God well. And the implication is, because I've been doing all of these things, therefore I'm, I'm a good person. But what this man does not realize is that there is something in his heart that has a chief prominent place that he can't see. That there is a God that this man is worshiping that he apparently doesn't realize. This man is an idol worshiper, and he doesn't know it. And Jesus is about to make him realize it. And so we we see here, uh, I think, a a principle, which is just simply this, friends, is you can't enthrone the true God in your heart unless you dethrone the false gods first. And this man has a false God in his heart. So what is it? Here's what Jesus does. He goes on, and uh, in verse 21... And very interesting here how he says, uh, or the text says here, Jesus looking at him loved him. Jesus is about to say something very difficult. Jesus is about to drive this man away sorrowful. And yet the text says that he loved him. You know, sometimes love requires saying the hard thing. and, And that's what Jesus is doing. And so, he loves this man and he says... Okay, you've kept all the commands, but you lack one thing. Go, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. It's not the answer that guy was looking to hear. All the external requirements, that that was what the guy wanted to hear because he's thinking to himself, I've done all those things. But now Jesus is getting to a heart issue. Jesus is challenging the idol of wealth in this man's life and he is not willing to give it up. And here, standing before him, is God in the flesh, the only one who can satisfy all of his desires and fulfill all of his longings and answer that question that he asked to begin with, what must I do to in- inherit eternal life? Here's the answer to all of his problems, and he walks away from it. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want to do this on Jesus' terms. And the reason why is because for this man, money is his identity, it's his savior, it's his chief joy, it's his reason for existence. In other words, it's an idol for him. So, very cleverly, Jesus is pointing this out to to the man, and um, verse 22, again, disheartened, goes away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had a lot of wealth. So, the point has been made, Uh, This man actually has an idol in his heart that he's not willing to repent of. And so, one question that all of us might have as we read this text is, is this something I'm supposed to do? Like, I got to go sell all that I have and give it to the poor? (laughs) Is that what Jesus wants of me? And my answer to that, you will be relieved to know, is no. I don't think... That's what Jesus is saying. Why? Well, it's always very important, I say this very frequently, it's always very important to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We look at a passage like this, it says certain things, yes, but we've got to consider what other passages say to kind of fill in our full understanding of the issue at hand. And so, you'll notice a lot of places in the Scriptures where riches are actually spoken of in a fairly positive way. Proverbs 22, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches, and honor, and life. God gives riches to to some people, and it's a blessing. Proverbs 10, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, the poverty of the poor is their ruin. So, wealth can be a a blessing from God. Often the Scriptures speak positively about wealth. But here's another thing to consider. 1 Timothy 5, 8 Paul says if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if you go sell everything that you have, how are you going to provide for your family? How are you going to obey this command if you don't have any money to buy food and if you don't have a house or a roof to put over your your family? I mean, obviously there's got to be something more going on here. Both of these commands can't be obeyed at the same time. So I think the distinction to keep in mind here, is that in Mark chapter 10, you've got Jesus speaking to an individual man who has a particular sin problem that needs to be challenged. And that's the idol of his wealth. And so Jesus is speaking to him in a particular way that he wouldn't necessarily speak to to others. I don't think what Jesus is saying to this rich young man is something that's applicable to every Christian. If you look at another passage, 1 Timothy 6, Here is a passage that's not to one particular individual, but spoken to rich people more broadly. And what Paul says is as for the rich in this present age, notice he doesn't say, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. He says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. In other words, charge them not to make their wealth an idol. That's what Paul is saying. That's the challenge. For all of us. So, what are some signs that wealth might be an idol for you? Could your money be your identity? Could it be the the thing that your hope is in more than anything else? Well, some signs of that uh, would be that you have a hard time giving it away. If you're protective of your money, you won't part with it, you just can't stand to be generous, you're stingy, you're cheap, money might be an idol. You are perpetually anxious about money. Of course, there are always things that happen that make us a little anxious, like tax day. But I mean, perpetually anxious, I mean, you're consumed with it and worried about it all the time. That could be because wealth is an idol for you. You envy and resent those who are rich. You can't stand it that people have more than you. (laughs) That could be because money is an idol for you. Another possible evidence is you're not tithing to your church. You're holding money back from God. The reason, perhaps, money is an idol. So wealth can be a distracting idol. That's what Jesus has shown this rich young ruler. That's what he's asking all of us, I think, to question in our own hearts. But the second thing to see is that wealth can also be a spiritual obstacle. Wealth can be a spiritual obstacle. So the man goes away disheartened, discouraged, and Jesus then, verse 23, turns his attention to the disciples, and he begins to teach them and to use this incident as a, as a teaching opportunity. And he says in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, those who have riches will find it very difficult to be saved. Now, he's not saying that the rich can't be saved… And that should come to us as good news because, quite frankly, relative to the rest of the world, everybody in this room is rich. So, thankfully, Jesus is not saying the rich can't be saved. He's just saying there is a spiritual obstacle that is presented to us when we are wealthy. And I just want to be very clear here. Um, that Jesus here is, is not like condemning rich people. Okay, you know, we live in a culture that kind of finds it very easy to, to resent the rich. And very often we think of rich people as, well, they must be corrupt. That's how they gain their riches. They must be greedy, you know. They must be oppressing all of those underneath them. That, that's not the point Jesus is making. This is not a resentment or anger against rich people. Fact is, there are going to be rich people in heaven that we're going to be well, like I just said, all of us are rich, so there'll be people richer than us we're going to be fellowshipping with for all eternity, and there are going to be poor people in hell, okay? So it's not like poor people get to heaven because they're poor, rich people go to hell because they're rich. That's that's not the point. You're missing the point if that's what you see. What Jesus is doing here is just simply giving a warning about how wealth can get in the way and interfere and conflict and confuse our spiritual interests. And, and it's so it's so it's such an issue that jesus makes this kind of interesting illustration in verse 25 where he says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god so i mean just think of that illustration i mean where did that come from a camel going through an eye of a needle there's some people who say well uh, the eye of the needle is actually <clears throat> the eye of a needle is a reference to a, a small gate going into a city and so that's, that's really what is referred to here, a camel going through a gate going into a, into a city. The problem with that is that that characterization of a gate in a city didn't come about until like the ninth century. So it wasn't even really a thing in, in Jesus' day. So I, I don't think that's what he means. I think he's, I think actually we're getting a picture of kind of Jesus' sense of humor a little bit. It's kind of a, a comical picture of this trying to get a great big animal with these big humps and force it through the eye of a needle. I mean, it's just absurd. It ought to get a chuckle out of you. It's kind of funny. The point is, the difficulty of doing that is similar to the difficulty of rich people getting to heaven. And so, why is that? why would it be so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? I mean, we could come up with a lot of reasons, I I think. I mean, one is that the more money you have, the more things you have to worry about, the more distractions there are. I mean, my mother owns a a condo down in Florida. It's a beautiful place. I happen to be power of attorney, so it's kind of my responsibility to manage the place, and, you know, we, we love it. We get to go for vacation for free. It's great, but you know, the refrigerator breaks down. I live a 1,000 miles away. I mean, there's property taxes. There's rental taxes. There's maintenance fee for the condo association. I mean, it takes a lot of time to manage this place. You, you know what it's like. The more you have, the more you're responsible for, the more your energies and emotional anxiety have to be devoted to all these things. That's one way that riches are an obstacle. Another way riches can be an obstacle is that it's often it, it leads to kind of pride. You know, isn't it pretty easy to think, well, look, I'm, I'm rich. Look how much I have. I mean, I must be pretty impressive to God. I mean, I must have really done some good things in my life because look at all the stuff I have. I mean, people aren't going to say it probably like that, but deep in our hearts, that's the way we think. That's the way people are. We just think if we got success, it's because of our goodness, and God is just rewarding us in accordance with all the good things that we have done. And if that's the way you think, you don't find yourself in need of a Savior, right? Because you find yourself pretty self-sufficient. Look at the life I've made for myself. Why do I need God when I have a house and a summer house and all the money that I need? And that leads to the other reason that wealth is sometimes an obstacle, and that is that when we have everything in this life, we think very little of the next life. We're just so comforted. We're just like intoxicated with our stuff and our money and our belongings. Richard Baxter uh, said this, <clears throat> when men prosper in the world, their minds are lifted up with their estates and they can hardly believe that they are so ill when they feel themselves so well. It's one of the ways that rich, riches can be a distraction. The Scriptures go on and and challenge us with this same notion in other places, the parable of the sower, Mark chapter 4, those who hear the Word, what often happens, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the Word and it proves unfruitful. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. One of them has to be your God. They both can't be. It's like being an employee and you have two bosses. And they're both telling you contradictory things. Who do you obey? You obey one, you disobey the other. So you obey this one, you're disobeying that one, and you're living in perpetual confusion. That's how riches sometimes can be a spiritual obstacle. So how are the uh, disciples responding to this? Verse 24. When Jesus is saying it's very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, and the disciples, they're just amazed at this. Amazed, verse 24. Verse 26, exceedingly astonished. What is it that's making them so astonished about this? I mean, because I think when we hear this, it doesn't really bother us that much. Again, because we live in this culture that kind of tends to resent uh, the rich, so it's not really a new idea that there are rich people who won't go to heaven. You know, that's not a startlingly new idea for us. But for them, it kind of was, because in Jewish culture, wealth was a symbol of God's favor and blessing. And it was just believed, if you have a lot of money, that means God loves you in a special way. God is really pleased with you. And so the disciples are reasoning here with Jesus' words, like, what? We always thought the wealthy people are the ones closest to God, and now you're saying the wealthy people can't even go to heaven. What are you talking about? And so that leads them to to this uh, statement at the end of verse 26. Then who can be saved? Verse 26. Yeah, end of verse 26. Then who can be saved? If wealthy people can't be saved, then, then who can be saved? And so Jesus' response in verse 27 is this. With man, this is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And this just gets to the main point here of this passage with regard to the gospel. What Jesus is saying here is that salvation for you as an individual on your own is absolutely impossible. You, you cannot save yourself no matter what you do. It's impossible. It's not hard, it's impossible for you to be moral enough to be saved, or for you to be religious enough to be saved, or for you to engage in enough social activism to be saved, or for you to be rich enough to be saved. It's impossible. Proverbs 11 tells us this, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. On your deathbed, when you're about to face God's judgment, your money will do for you absolutely nothing. They don't profit. Only righteousness. And that's a righteousness that only comes from God in the gospel. And so Jesus says, all things are possible with God. It is possible for you to be saved if you stop relying on yourself and look to what God has done in sending His Son into this world and taking the penalty for all of your sins and defeating death on the cross and being raised from the dead in His glorious bodily resurrection. That's the only possibility anybody has to be saved. And so that's what Jesus is saying. So you might say, okay, I mean, how can I fight this obstacle? How can I push back against the obstacle of riches and wealth? And I think just you know one very simple way to do it is just to start learning how to give it away. Learn how to give away your, your wealth. Give away your money. I mean, this is a world in which that just sounds like the most absurd thing in the world. But this is a, a completely biblical way to live. Learn how to give. Yeah, you've got to support your family. We just heard that from 1 Timothy 5.8. You've got to make money. You've got to manage your money responsible so you can take care of your family and basic needs. That's true. But Instead of asking, like, how, how much can I give? Maybe you should start asking, I mean, how much can I really keep? So, one way you can start is to, again, tithe to your church. Tithe to the church to which you have made a commitment. Start tithing. Start giving 10% of your income to the church if you're not already doing that. Here is a great way to fight the obstacle of wealth. Tithe. Tithing is not just to make sure the pastor has a comfortable life. Tithing is a spiritual exercise. It's a discipline. It's good for you. It's good for you to give your money away. There are some other options, though, too. You know, there's plenty of good ministries you can give to. First choice here in uh, locally and Muncie Mission, and there's other options. We have a, a young man named Peter McFarland who's hoping to go to Spain to be a missionary. He needs financial support. We have a young man named Brandon Buller who's wanting to plant a church up in Fort Wayne. He needs financial support. You want to give away your money? There, there's, some, there's some ideas for you. A good way to fight the spiritual obstacle of wealth. Okay, one last thing. Even though wealth can be a distracting idol, and even though it can be a spiritual obstacle, it can also be wisely invested for God's kingdom. Now, again, I just want to clarify, maybe I'm saying this too much, but it, it, is, it is not wrong to want to make money, okay? It's not sinful to be wealthy, it's not wrong to think, you know, look, we got to upgrade our automobile. we got to get a new car. we got to get a bigger van. Our family is getting bigger. We've we got to get a different house. We, we, it, let's go out to eat. There's nothing wrong with those things. Yeah, sometimes the cook and the family needs a break. Sometimes it's a good way to spend time with friends. Go out to eat. That This is not a prohibition against enjoying your life or enjoying the money that God has has given you. What the passage, though, is doing, again, is forcing all of us to ask, what kind of grip does money have on my heart? Ask that question. But it also is forcing us to ask this question, how am I using my money for God's kingdom? How am I investing it in eternal things? And so pick up verse 28. Peter, after hearing what... Uh, Jesus has been saying about the difficulty of going to heaven when you're rich, maybe getting a little bit insecure here. He says, "Uh, Jesus, we left everything and followed you. And he kind of wants to make sure it's known, look, we're we're not these rich people you're talking about. We're willing to part with our resources. We've left it all to follow you. And then Jesus gives this very precious promise in verse 29. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. What Jesus is saying here is whatever you lose for the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel and service to Jesus will be gained back. And in fact, the return on your investment is astounding it's a hundredfold, verse 30 says. Uh, that's a 10,000% increase, okay? <laughs> I mean, how many investments do you have that guarantee a 10,000% rate of return? Uh, that, that's what, what Jesus is saying here, you know? There's high-risk investments. That's where you stand to make a lot, but you might lose a lot. It's high risk. There's low-risk investments. That's where you, you might make a little, but it's low risk, so you're, you're probably only standing to lose a little. What Jesus is promising here is a no-risk investment, that whatever you give in service to the kingdom will be gained back more than you can imagine. I saw an example of this recently. A woman named Diane Gordon uh, lives in Michigan in the Detroit area, uh, didn't own a car, walked to work every day a couple of miles, walked to work the story came out in February. She's walking to work one day, and she goes past this gas station and finds this bag on the ground. And she opens up the bag, and it's filled with cash. And there are some wedding cards in there also. And so apparently, it's a, you know a wedding gift that somebody dropped. Starts counting. There's like fourteen thousand seven hundred dollars in this bag. And this is a, a woman who needs the money. She has no car. She walks to work. And what does she do? Turns it into the police immediately. She said, I never thought for a moment that I would keep it. It doesn't belong to me. So she turns it into the police. And one of the police officers has a wife. And the wife notices what Diane Gordon did. And so the wife starts a GoFundMe campaign. And it ends up making, for Diane Gordon, $28,000. <laughs> so she gives up almost fifteen, dollars and ends up making twenty-eight. dollars Now, don't push that too literally, too hard, but it is an illustration of how the kingdom of God works. We we get back what we give to it, and the investment is beyond what we would imagine, beyond what we could possibly imagine. I'm not talking here about a prosperity gospel, friends, okay? But let's be clear, because if you go back to verse 30, notice that Jesus mentions with persecutions... That's something else you can expect to come back to you as you serve the kingdom. Not just an investment on what you've given, but persecutions from the world. And of course, the benefits listed here are mostly kind of relational benefits, right? Brothers and sisters, uh, mothers and children and, and houses. So, it seems like what Jesus is referring to here are benefits that come from being part of the community of faith, being part of the church, having brothers and sisters who welcome us and care for us. So, Clearly, Jesus has something more in mind here than just money. But, but the bottom line is just simply what Paul says to us here in 1 Corinthians 15. Always abound in the work of the Lord and knowing that the Lord in the Lord, your, your labor is not in vain. It's never in vain what you give to God's kingdom, either in service or monetarily. So, one last verse here, and here's how Jesus kind of finishes up this story verse 21, or how Mark finishes this up as he tells us. Jesus lastly says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. So, remember the rich young ruler, right? Remember what I said at the very beginning of the message? He was first in the world. He had everything. Man, he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, he's got power. First in the world, last in God's kingdom. He had no interest in coming to Jesus on his terms. He had no interest in parting with anything for the sake of the kingdom. But friend, you who expends yourself for the kingdom of God, may be last in the world, but first in the eyes of God. That's the promise from the story of the rich young ruler. Lord, thank you so much for teaching us through your word. God, would you please help us to use our resources wisely and sacrificially in service to you. We thank you, Lord, so much for the blessings that you have given us. You have abundantly blessed all of us, Father, and we give you thanks for that. But we also want to know how best to use our wealth for your service, so help us to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen.